welcome back to Millennial Ag, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Valine Likely and Catherine Lotspeech. Listeners, welcome back to this week's episode of the Millennial Ag podcast. I think we're on episode 102. Um, and as we head into fall time, leaves are starting to change. Um, there's still There's still a few fires going on and still some public issues that are kind of on the table that have that are always being talked about, but we have um, Kim with us this week to kind of talk through those and just hear about what's going on in her neck of the woods. So before we get too far in, uh, Kim, thanks for joining us and tell listeners a little bit about yourself and your operation. Um, my name's Kim Kearns. Um, my family is from Northeast Oregon. Um, I'm a fourth generation sheep and cattle rancher. Um, my great grandpa, uh, came to Oregon in the early 1900s um, as a young child from Nebraska and started a homestead in the early teens. Um, and we actually still run cows and sheep on that homestead, which is pretty cool. Um, we we're kind of in the middle of a lot of public land issues, um, wolf issues, fire issues. We sort of have run the gamut on having um, all of the rancher problems right now. So we've kind of got a lot on the table um, as far as current events right here. So I guess, do you want to just break down maybe, let's start with the wolves. What are some of the wolf issues you're specifically dealing with or that get you fired up because I think you're very passionate about wolves and I know they're, they're a very hot topic, um, right now, at least in the state of Idaho. Um, so what's kind of going on with you and the wolves? So our ranch was the, the first recorded depredation, um, in the state of Oregon since reintroduction. And I don't mean reintroduction in Oregon because they weren't technically reintroduced to Oregon. Um, but reintroduction in Yellowstone in 95, um, in 2009, um, our sheep were attacked multiple times starting the weekend of Easter Sunday. Um, and by the end of September, we'd lost more than 30 head of lambs and ewes, um, both of which um, were attacked right there on our home place. So um, probably 200 yards from the house, um, well within you know, visual sight of, of the pen with the sheep in it. And, uh, we were just having a lot of problems. Um, so those wolves were, um, from Idaho, they'd probably crossed the river. Um, we're really close. We're probably within 25, 30 miles of the snake river. Um, and council Idaho is, I mean, Idaho is just super, super close to our place. Um, that pair was eventually killed uh, that fall, um, fish and wildlife went in and had to do a lethal take on those two wolves because they just wouldn't knock it off. Um, they killed several of the neighbor's calves. They'd run a horse through the fence. It was just kind of a train wreck. Uh, since then, Oregon has adopted a wolf plan and they have updated it multiple times. Um, this summer, I'm kind of jumping around here and, and it's kind of hard to follow, but this summer um, I actually had to go herd sheep on our forest allotment um, because of COVID and various other things. We actually couldn't get our sheep herder back from Peru. 
and we're in the middle of a drought. It's really dry here. There wasn't a ton of hay to put up. So we were like, you know what, this is a pretty good year to just herd the sheep, get through it. Um, lamb prices are sky high. So we had a lot of motivation to make sure all those lambs got on the truck this fall. And um, we dropped the sheep off Jan July 5th on our forest permit. And the first couple of days were all right. Um, and probably the third or fourth day, um, my guard dogs just started going nuts. And guard dogs, we've had guard dogs since the early 80s. Um, they aren't really new to us or anything. We've used them for coyotes and cats and bears and all kinds of protection against most predators. And there for two days solid, my guard dogs, I never saw a guard dog sit down. I never saw one lie down. I, I never saw one eat. Um, they were just constantly running around the sheep, running into the forest, um, hackles up, freaking out. Um, I talked to my sheep herders down in Peru who says he's always had a little bit of pressure there from, from a wolf pack. And so we ended up calling wildlife services and fish and wildlife and a bunch of other stuff. And, and we went on probably three weeks there where everything was on high alert. Um, the sheep, the horses, the guard dogs, people, every time a twig snapped, you would just about pass out. You know, you just thought <laughs> something was behind you. And it's a pretty, it's a forest that could use some forest management um, it's pretty deep and dark and scary and you can't see around trees and stuff like that. So things got pretty crazy there for a little bit. Um, we moved on to another camp and, uh, and, and finally had some actual depredations. The, the wolves were coming into camp at night and pushing on our night fence. Um, we've used an electro net fence around our sheep at night since 2014. Um, and it's actually kept us from having any type of predator problems at night since then, um, which is pretty cool. Like it's actually really cool. Um, but we were having the wolves come right into camp and push against the fence at night. Um, so it was kind of a problem. Um, finally found a dead lamb and hauled it down to the fish and wildlife office in Pendleton. Um, they declared that lamb probable but unconfirmed. Um, that's important because according to the Oregon wolf plan, um, a wolf or a pack needs to kill three animals within three months and it has to be confirmed, not probable. So it needs to be a confirmed kill in order to request lethal action on those wolves. So what's the, how do they declare whether it's confirmed or probable? So they'll pick up your animal. Um, a lot of times they... Usually they will just come out to the field. Um, they'll look at the area in which the animal was killed. They'll look at the killing ground, see whether that animal was drug. Um, you know, any, it's like a crime scene. It's CSI stuff. Um, they look, <laughs> they look around, um, you know, are there pieces of the animal here or there? Was it clear that the animal was drug? Is there any kind of blood trail? Um, is there any scat? Is there any wolf hair or bear hair or any kind of hair? Um, they then pick the animal up and usually take it down and do a postmortem on it. Um, they often uh, shave the hide to look for bite marks or bruising. Um, they skin areas of the animal to look for deeper bruising, um, look for bite marks, look for tooth scrapes, and they do a lot of measuring, um, like canine to canine measuring to see, you know, how wide those are. Um, 
several years ago at our home place, we had a problem with, uh, we had probably a 500 pound calf killed in the early morning hours. Um, cows were running all over the place. And um, I measured every dog on our place for canine to canine, just to see kind of what the width was. And a wolf is like twice as large as your average border collie. And at least another, probably a quarter inch to a half inch wider than a guard dog. So, I mean, there's absolutely no discrepancy when you see a wolf canine to canine measurement versus a coyote, a, a fox, you know, whatever, any kind of other animal that could potentially attack one of these um, animals, livestock. So you're, you're telling us about the pressure that you've been facing with wolves. Um, what, I guess, what measures are being taken to, to prevent more attacks like this? Um, and I guess, what else, what else are you facing because of this? So there's been quite an evolution in um, non-lethal, non-lethal methods of like wolf deterrent. Um, Initially, people were using what they call fladry, and it basically looks like um, like flag football flags hung off of a single wire of electric fencing. And the idea was that the flapping around of the flags would scare the wolves away from your livestock. Um, it's never worked. I mean, it's just like flapping your horse in the face with a flag. And he might spook the first few times, but eventually he's going to get used to it. And, you know, you're not going to get any reaction at all from him. Um, the same kind of holds true for several of the other, uh, early deterrents they were using. They were using something called cracker shells. Um, they were shotgun shells with this loud bang in them, um, flash bangs, stuff like that. Um, people used those to try to scare the wolves away from their livestock, you know, in the middle of the night when there was clearly an interaction going on. None of those worked. Um, like I said before, in 2014, we started using an electro net fence and that's been awesome. I mean, it keeps your animals super safe overnight. Um, the downside of this is, is the wolves then altered their behavior. They would just start attacking during the day. And that's kind of where we're at right now. Um, the wolves will just follow you around all day and pick off the edges of the lambs. Um, Obviously someone's there with them 24 seven. Um, that's also a huge deterrent is just human, human presence. Um, when we were having a ton of problems this, this summer with the wolves coming in at night and just really putting a ton of pressure on that fence and the guard dogs, um, we would have three or four people come spend the night all night um, just to keep a human presence there. And that helped a lot, but obviously you can't be on all sides of the sheep during the day when they're out grazing. And that's where we had most of our losses this year. Um, so that's, as far as like cattle go, um, range riding seems to help some, but it's the same thing. You can't see all of your cows all day long. Um, it's really hard to keep ahead of the wolves that way. Eastern Oregon has had a tremendous wolf problem um, since early this, I mean, we've had a tremendous wolf problem since 2009. But in our specific area, um, we have multiple packs right now that are just causing, I mean, wreaking havoc on, on livestock. Um, we have one pack 
they just killed four of them, four members of the pack last week. And since then, the pack has already had two more, two more kills attributed to them. Um, they wiped out one of the alphas and all of the um, young adults in that pack. They left an alpha in this year's puppies. Um, and like I say, since then, they've already killed again. Um, there's talk of, there was talk of just removing the entire pack, but obviously um, you're gonna have a lot of uh, pushback from the public and fish and wildlife on that. So it's pretty hard to navigate um, with a lot of the special interest groups that are really, really invested in, in wolf preservation um, to try to get something like an entire pack removal um, pushed through. So if you, so if you happen to actually physically see a wolf, um, I know in Idaho, we have hunting tags and they're working on additional mitigation. Are you able to hunt or kill that wolf? If you happen to be out at sheep camp and see him coming in, do you have that capability in Oregon to, to kill them yourself? Or do you have to report it? Um, in order for me to kill the wolf, um, he basically needs to be holding a little lamb leg like a drumstick in his hand and, and have wool in his teeth. Um, he needs to be in the act of attacking livestock or guard dogs or whatever before I can do a lethal take on that wolf. Um, besides that, um, the normal channel for having a lethal take in Oregon is the wolf needs to kill three animals within three months and those kills have to be confirmed. Um, you can then um, issue a written, re written request for a lethal take. And the big question kind of right now is that I've asked several people, I've asked lots of fish and wildlife, I've asked the Cattlemen's Association, um, I've asked uh, a few county commissioners because we've had several several depredation events around our home place that have been confirmed and a written request was put forth and it was denied and we aren't sure who's denying them um in oregon it's not so much that the framework doesn't exist for a plan of what to do. We have a wolf plan. It was updated in 2019, I think. Um, and I've read it, it reads really well. Like it, it's very clear, the objectives are clear. Um, the method of lethal take is clear. Everything's very clear, but the governing body is not administering it. Um, I think that is a result of a lot of public pressure, um, but it doesn't take away from the fact that the wolf plan does exist. It says right there in black and white, um, three kills, three months, you can do a lethal take on them. Um, and we're just not, we're just not following the wolf plan. Who wrote the wolf plan or where, what agency does the wolf plan reside in? 
So a lot of different groups, industry groups, um, special interest groups, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, Oregon Department of Ag, um, all kinds of people were involved in the writing of the Wolf Plan. Everybody kind of got their say in it. Um, it was kind of a collaborative effort. Um, there's a whole lot of information in there talking about um, the initial reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone in order to try to disperse some elk herds and reduce elk numbers to try to bring back willows and cottonwoods and this and that and the other. Um, there's a lot of discussion about that. There's a lot of discussion about natural disbursement and stuff like that. Um, like I say, it, it reads really well, but everybody kind of got their say in it. Everybody got a piece of the pie when they put it together. Um, but it's not like the Cattlemen's Association can go out and, you know, say that, you know, it says in the wolf plan, three kills in three months, and now we're going to kill wolves. We still have to rely upon fish and wildlife to go out and do that. So what, why are ranchers generally at odds with the public about, about wolves? Um, we've heard your side of the story, obviously, but, um, you know, you mentioned some special interest groups that have a major stake in, in, um, wolf welfare, I guess. Um, where, why, where does that disconnect come from? Um, I think, I don't know. I, I feel like the public, it's the same old, the public, public lands, ranching on public lands, um, public lands grazing argument. Um, the public feels like all we're doing is running cows and sheep on public lands until there's nothing left but dirt and cheatgrass. And, and, you know, welfare ranching. Everybody talks about welfare ranching and the welfare ranchers and all we're doing is raping and pillaging the public land um, for our own gain. Um, that's a lot of what I see. I mean, you can, you can log on to any Facebook group and see the arguments about it. Um, I think the public has a, um, kind of a fairy tale view of the wolf. Um, they see the wolf as being kind of a symbol of the West and a symbol of the wild. And I'm not saying they're wrong. Um, I don't even think that having wolves around in public lands or private lands or, you know, in the wild is a bad thing. Um, you know, they do keep the elk more dispersed. They do, they do keep wildlife populations down, but we do need to be able to manage those populations. And that's really all we would kind of like, um, is, is to be able to, to have a management plan that everyone follows. And are you seeing some pressure from Portland and the um, West Coast a little bit too, that there's that disconnect, you know, that more extreme disconnect than we might see in, in more of the rural states, say Montana, Idaho, Wyoming? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, our urban center is Portland. Um, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter how I vote on this side of the state. It really, really doesn't. Um, my vote really doesn't count. Um, 
Multnomah County. I think it's Multnomah County that Portland's in. Um, they're they're our urban center, and that's where all of the all of the big decisions are made. Um, the Oregon Wolf Plan split the state into two, so there's a western or wolf zone and an eastern wolf zone. So you would think that that would alleviate some of the pressure, but it really, really doesn't. Um, a lot of your, a lot of your most outspoken, um, your most outspoken people that are pro wolf are still from that side of the state. Um, several years ago, I went and testified before the Senate in Salem regarding the wolf situation, and a woman actually got up from Portland and said that if it came between her child and a wolf, she would pick the wolf every time. So that gives you some indication as to how rapid <laughs> the public is about preserving um, these animals. So I guess, like, where do we go from here? You know, where agriculture seems to be stuck in this place or we feel like we're stuck, you know, we've got the urban sprawl, we've got the urban pressure and we've got all these natural resources that are being threatened, whether it's by the wolf fires, whatever, but how do we, how do we move forward or how do we come together and move forward or help spread the message to the public? I don't know. Um, I, this is like, this is the quandary of the summer. Like how, can we get through to these people that I'm not the only one affected? Um, you know, everyone says, oh, it's just a sheep or it's just a cow. You can, you know, it's, it's no big deal. And it's not in their backyard. So it's not a real concern of theirs. Um, I don't know how to explain to people in a way that they can understand that a lot of the problems faced by everyone out West, you know, um, increasing fire pressure, uh, weed management, erosion management, wolf management, wildlife management, Endangered Species Act, sage grouse, all of this is interconnected. And it's not just my sheep that are causing the problems, but they, we need to be able to use these livestock as tools to improve the living situation of, of everyone. And that was a really, that was, <laughs> that was not a super, super, super way, good way to say it. But um, I guess I'm just, that's where I'm stuck right now. Like you try to talk to people and they're not interested in listening to you. Um, but it's sort of the climate of everything right now. I mean, it's just really, really hard for anybody to come together in any kind of cohesive manner. Everything, it doesn't matter what what the topic is. It seems like there's some polarization <laughs> of, yeah. of it all. And it times times right now are challenging, like you said, to even have those hard, hard conversations or just come maybe go to sheep camp with you for it for a night to see what it's like to to watch those wolves and see what what threats those guard dogs are looking out for and stuff that like we, they don't even have an idea of what it's like out there I don't think they do um so I went to I went to Montana State 
um, for college. And I remember cutting out of the Billings Gazette one time, it would have been probably around 2004. Um, I cut a letter to the editor out of the Billings Gazette that a man had written in, he'd hauled his family to Yellowstone and they were so excited about seeing wolves. They saw wolves in the Lamar Valley and they just thought it was the greatest thing they'd ever seen in their life right up until the point that a wolf went up, hamstrung a cow elk and proceeded to eat her alive. And <laughs> they, they decided that um, they decided that the wolf's method was a little too gruesome for them. And then they decided that they didn't support reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone. And <laughs> while we all know that nature's metal, like it's a little crazy out there in the, in the wild America, um, I just don't think that people really understand how, how they do it. Like, I don't, under, I don't think they understand the hamstringing and the eating of fetuses from live cows and things like that, that we ranchers see on a fairly regular basis. Um, and we don't necessarily share with the public because it is gruesome. I mean, it is horrible. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, I'm not saying that wolves don't have their place in the ecosystem because they do, but we all need to agree on some kind of control measure. Well, and just like you said earlier, having a policy and a plan in place and, and, and following through with it or knowing what to expect when something happens rather than just being a guessing game on, well, maybe we'll be able to mitigate or maybe we'll just have to deal with it. Yeah. Um, right now we have two very active packs, um, near our spring pasture, um, our deeded pasture, and then near our home place. And uh, one of those I brought up earlier, they were the ones that I think they've, I think they've killed nearly, nearly all the pack. I think there's only five head of wolves left and they're the ones that killed again a couple days ago. Um, I don't think people understand the amount, even, even when wolves aren't just killing things they're still out there putting pressure and it's it's still stress it stresses your livestock it stresses your cows um you see marked um weaning shortages i mean calves are coming in 20 30 50 pounds light and yes i realize it's a drought year it's horrible out here it's really really dry but at the same time i mean you just run those cattle to the point that they're on edge all the time and um, I think you see more economic impact in the stress that the wolves bring than actual depredation. So um, several years ago, Oregon State University um, did a study where they tried to um, record how much movement um, a wolf pack could like make a bunch of cows move. So they put radio collars on a whole bunch of cows in a pasture. And then they went up above the cows on a ridgeline and they let wolf scent loose and they just let it drift down the draws. And you could follow, so all these little cows were represented by a little black dot and all the little cows were spread all over the pasture doing cow things, you know, feeding around. 
And as soon as they released that scent, um, you know, three or four minutes later, you saw all those little black dots go and they just ran to a corner and they milled and they were tight and they were just, I mean, like in a corral kind of tight and they just milled around and you just saw a flurry of little black dots. And as soon as that scent dissipated, all the little cows um, went back out and went back to eating. So you can't say that that half hour, 45 minutes or however long it was that those cows stood in a corner and milled and pushed against a fence to try to get out of there um, wasn't, you know, causing them some type of stress and weight loss and they weren't out eating and doing cow things. So um, I think that's probably a bigger economic impact just about than actual depredation. What would you want the public to know when they're having to vote on these types of issues? Um, I would just really, I don't know. I would just like the public to call a rancher, like try to understand what we're dealing with. And I guess we could say that about a lot of issues and we say it all the time. I mean, I see it all over social media. Ask a rancher, ask a rancher. Um, I don't know if ranchers need to make themselves more available um, to be asked or if we need to be more open about what we're dealing with, um, like, should we be sharing those photos of cows with calves eaten right out of them? Um, should we be showing photos of dead guard dog puppies? Um, should we be showing photos of lambs crushed to death? I don't know. Um, it always seems a little excessive to me. Um, because I do feel like, I do feel like there should be some sensitivity there, I guess. Um, but I, I don't know how to pull the public into complete understanding of um, wildlife management. And I think that's good food for thought and good food for our listeners to kind of chew on too, you know, as we, as we wrap up this episode, kind of thinking how, how we can maybe take that next step. Cause it seems like sometimes we, we just spin our wheels and, and it might be, you know, simple and it might be complex, but just starting to have some more of these dialogues internally and then externally, you know, at the grocery stores or places we, we come across people that we can say, Hey, what would you like to know? Or what would you be interested in knowing? And I know tell our story and thank a farmer and, you know, call a rancher almost gets, to clickbaity or tagliney sometimes. Um, but I think that's, you know, something, something good to think on. Um, Kim, as we wrap up, what, is there anything else you would like to, um, share with listeners, um, on this topic or any other topic? And then where can, where can our listeners find you and follow you on social media? Well, I guess most listeners would probably be involved in agriculture to some degree. Um, all I can say is, you know, please, I don't, I'm not a big fan of getting involved in stuff, but I guess I would suggest, you know, do get involved in your local farm bureau, get involved in your cattlemen's association, get involved in these industry groups that, you know, are 
invested in litigation. They're invested in trying to get some of these problems mitigated. Like, um, even if you don't know where to start, those people do. Um, for states that do not currently have um, wolf problems, um, but it's on the horizon, I think Colorado is talking about doing reintroduction. Um, wolves have dispersed from Oregon into Northern California. Um, I know that um, California is working to put together like kind of a, a plan for how to go from here on um, compensation and stuff like that. Um, you know, get really involved in, and ask people from states like Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, and Oregon, and Washington, I guess, um, that have had, had wolves for 15, 20 years. Um, you know, we've dealt with it. Like, we know quite a bit about it at this point. And in a lot of, in a lot of cases, our hands are tied and we don't know what to do either. Um, but I've found in a lot of cases also, like, solidarity is great. Like, if we're all in this together, it, it seems less daunting. Mm -hmm. And that would be my suggestion. Just get involved and understand what's going on in your state because if you are just starting to put this together if you're just starting to put a wolf plan together make sure it's one that is workable for agriculture in your area awesome well thank you again for joining us um and where can listeners find you kim oh um i try to stay off facebook because i have a really short temper um <laughs> political stuff, but I can always be found on Instagram. Um, and Kimberly Kearns is my hand or no, it's not Kimberly Jacobs is my handle. Perfect. Well, we'll tag you, um, when we share this episode this week and, um, listeners, if you have any more questions or have any comments or thoughts, feel free to reach out to us as well. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or email us at talk to us at millennialag.com until next week. We are millennial. Ag.